Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And I would like to begin today by thanking Joseph T. and Andrew G., both of whom made donations to the salon this past week. And Andrew also asked me to give a shout-out for a conference that's titled In Theogenesis Australis that will be held near Melbourne, Australia on the 8th through the 10th of December this year. Andrew also says that his only affiliation is as a ticket holder who wants to find the others. And that conference, by the way, has a truly stellar lineup of speakers, including Rick Doblin, Kat Harrison, Eric Davis, Tom Roberts, and Nashe Devonro, among others. So, if you're able to get to Melbourne in December, well, this would be an excellent conference where you can find a few more of the others. Now let's get back to the Planque Norte lectures that were held at the Burning Man Festival this past August. And the talk that I'm going to play for us today is by the visionary artist Android Jones. I'm not exactly sure when I first learned about the amazing art that Android creates, but it was several years ago when I first began receiving emails from fellow saloners who sent me links to his work. And I'll provide some of those links in today's program notes, which you know you can find at psychedelicsalon.com. I don't actually have the right words to properly describe Android's work, but my guess is that you most likely have already seen much of it at festivals, uh, on album covers, and online at YouTube and other sites. In the past, Android has worked with George Lucas at Industrial Light and Magic, and he worked at Nintendo as well before striking out on his own. In the program notes, I'll put a link to his Vimeo channel, as well as to his YouTube channel, where he appears both as Android Jones and as Andrew Jones. And I'll be sure to link to one of my favorites of his that's titled Samskara. Now that my body is wearing out a little bit, I've had to give up using strong psychedelic medicines for the most part. But late at night, before going to bed... Sometimes I like to get really stoned and watch one of Android's videos. When it comes to having a psychedelic experience, I find that his videos are actually the next best thing to being in that space, particularly when boosted by a little cannabis. So, now let's join Android Jones in the Palenque Norte tent at Camp Soft Landing on a hot August evening in 2017 and learn a little more about this important psychedelic artist. Hi, hi everyone. I, uh, I lost my voice a few days ago, so you guys are going to have to get my like Illuminati Godfather voice for this whole lecture. Uh, thanks for having me. Man, I remember there's there are so many pieces of art that I made super late at night while linking while listening to like Lorenzo and the uh, Palenque Norte. So it's awesome to be part of this and be added to the library. And uh, I don't have any kind of like spiel or agenda or anything. This is a Q&A. So uh, your questions will definitely like lead the next hour. So anything you guys, I don't really have any too many out of bounds topics. So we're at Burning Man. You guys can ask whatever and I'll try to honest as answer as honestly as helpfully as possible. That's a great question. Yeah. 
um, kind of alone time and solitude is, is really important to me. Um, I'm definitely by naturally much more of like an introvert than extrovert. I'm the most comfortable when I'm just kind of there in the moment of creation. Uh, I find that as I get uh, older um, to really kind of get into the kind of that to be able to like open myself up enough to receive some type of, you know, to connect with the muse or kind of reach a deeper level of, of insider narrative into the works that I do that I like to have like a good, it's not something I can just jump into and out of anymore. So the way I structure my days is, uh, on an ideal day when I'm not doing a lot of traveling, um, I start the day by waking up at midnight and then I've got like a good eight hour stretch from midnight to eight in the morning to just totally be by myself, like no email, no other distractions. And that's kind of like my kind of like the precious sort of like work time that I have. Then it, I wake up at eight and, uh, by that time I, uh, Martha and my daughter are waking up. So I hang out with them in bed, sleep for four hours, wake up again, at around one, take care of like, just like the mandatory communication and business and things like that have dinner, watch the sunset uh, with my family, go to bed for another four hours and wake up at midnight and do the eight-hour stretch. So I do that, and then sometimes I'll do kind of... I've, I find that I've been, like, over the years, I've been getting, getting more into, like, just, like, binge creativity where I might take, kind of get in, like, take a whole weekend or take two days or kind of save up and sleep a little bit. But... um yeah, if I like distractions, this is the biggest enemy towards me being able to make anything that I don't hate. So, having that time is, uh, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not in, I'm not very much of like a co-working space kind of person. It's very hermetic. So, uh, can you talk a little bit about uh, your relationship with entheogens and the creative process, and whether it's something that you know how you integrate that kind of experience or mystical experience into your art both in terms of conception and actually execution sure um i've i've been an artist all my life since i was like five i just knew that what i was going to do so um i uh like a lot of the art training and the art classes i had i didn't really discover entheogens probably marijuana when i was 15 and um I just remember, like I as I was, I mean, I was a pothead from like my first toke, like in the back of the parking lot. And what I found is that it just, I had always spent a lot of time by myself drawing. Um, you know, drawing is kind of how I kind of ex- got to know myself and explore my own consciousness. And when I started smoking marijuana. It just, you know, making a piece of art. Um, one way of looking at it, it's 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 really like an advanced problem solving. You kind of create these problems, like I want to draw a thundercat, or I want to draw, you know, like this sort of like a sunset, or whatever it is. That you're the problem is you have this idea, and it it that hasn't come into existence yet, and you bring it into existence, and you can start. There's infinite ways of starting, and um, marijuana was great because it's like it. I was looking at the same problems, but it's like. I was. I felt like I was always looking at the problems from one angle, and all of a sudden I could just take whatever that problem was, and I could, you know, essentially just like rotate it and see it from a completely new perspective. And I think that is a, a lot. That that sort of change, being able to change like 
the lens of my understanding and how I'm solving problems is what really attracted me towards making art in different types of altered spaces. Um, part of what has, I think, helped out a lot is uh, I, have a, I, have a, I have a long history of like an academic uh, education in art, a lot of blind contour and figure drawing and anatomy and form and structure. So I spent like a good decade just with a lot of discipline, like learning the ins and outs of what it takes to fundamentally kind of create an image. And because I had what I found that was once I kind of got into college, um, I definitely started to experiment more with psychedelics and MDMA and nitrous and uh, LSD. And uh, I, that's, I think that's kind of where I hit like a stride. And I realized that I could kind of surrender maybe like my more like active consciousness and I could, I could, I could alter the, my frame of perspective, but all of the skills that I had, like the, the, the anatomy form color theory, though, no matter how altered I got that baseline of skill was just right there and like totally available, which was really great. And so there are times where, um, under the different influences, I could feel um, almost like a different, like a presence coming in. Like there's times during like a, a deep, deep kind of ceremonial practice. And and to preface this, like I would, you know, try to be as respectful as possible. Like you know, lock the doors, turn off the cell phone, turn off like unplug the internet, and just kind of buckle up for like a 24 hour. Whatever is going to happen is going to happen. Um, and uh, yeah, there are definitely times where I could like look down at my hands and my hands are creating something and I don't, I don't know whose hands these are, you know, like they're making marks in there and things are happening. And it's kind of, it's kind of like waking up when you have like a lucid dream, you have that moment of like, you, you, you know, you're lucid, you know, you're dreaming and you're kind of just riding the edge of that. That would happen sometimes. And it is exciting, but it's also a little scary because I wasn't really always sure what kind of deals I was making or what, if, if it's not me in control, like who is in control. Um, one benefit that I found through psychedelics, uh, particularly LSD, is, um, you know, I think obviously every artist is going to have their own, uh, we've all got our own chemistry and our own background and our own uh, personal relationships with how these alter us and how a lot of it is how our imagination works. Um, I have never had a really active visual imagination. Like I don't, I'm not a visionary. I don't close my eyes and see visions. I don't, I don't, the images I make aren't something I've conjured in my imagination, you know, in the mind. And I just try to recreate that. Like they're very, they're very impulsive. Like the piece is revealed to me as I create the piece. Um, and a lot of that process, a lot of my process kind of starting from, usually I'll start with music I might have an idea or an intention, but I'll I'll do a lot of prep work. Like I'll build a palette, you know. I'll kind of have some sort of kind of like base concept of what I want to kind of explore, and then I'll listen to music. And then the first few hours are really just kind of just chaos and noise, just throwing down like different colors and shapes and patterns, and now I'll put down different pieces of like geometry or gradients, and I kind of work with that um, and create a whole base of seemingly random um, information and you know with or without psychedelics then I'll kind of look at this and something intuitive like some type of like this this pareidolia like our minds 
the the psychological condition where our minds make sense out of chaos takes over and these random shapes start becoming things um under the influence of like an lsd i find that lsd is like a steroid for the pareidolia you know whatever whatever part of my mind is uncomfortable with chaos and wants to make something mean something when i'm on you know 500 mics of lsd like i can pretty much see it crystallized in front of me you know i'll be i've had a lot of experience of looking at the chaos and seeing the finished piece there in front of me and then i just have to kind of recreate the steps of of bringing it out but i find that um usually the one one positive aspect of uh creating art under those kind of conditions is uh, the LSD I find that it most of the time it's pretty predictable and it I like to think it puts me in touch with a higher element of myself um, like I said before we're talking about being alone I'm much less prone to any kind of distractions than I might normally be if I'm sober because the idea of like checking Facebook or my email is like repulsive when you're high and you're tripping so like i don't have to worry about that like i'm very much there and present with what's ever happening the challenge though is that it you know within the four or five hours of that experience there is kind of a peak and there's kind of a there's a high point of i would call it kind of like the ultimate pareidolia where i can i can see where the piece is going um I, when i work digitally i can oftentimes the the monitor becomes more of like a window into another world and the layers are three dimensional. And so I have this temporary superpower of this insight of seeing like the highest crystallized version of what this image could be. And it's, and it's moving and it's a narrative, you know, it's, it's more than I could ever capture with two dimensional shapes. Um, but yeah, the, the, the kind of challenge is trying to crystallize it enough before the high wears off. Um, cause when you're high, everything can look pretty rad, you know, it can like look amazing, you know, when you're, you think it's the best piece ever when you're stoned and you're like, Oh my God, it's the best piece. And then you get sober the next day and you look at it, you're like, that's not so special at all. So you've really got to seize that window and crystallize it before the drugs wear off and you kind of lose the vision and you're left with just a bunch of noise and chaos and regretting it. So it's kind of a. But those are those are there's lots of different I could answer that question all night, but that's one way that I find that they're beneficial. You know, but yeah. like you, you don't have time to do art when you're doing something like that. I mean Yeah. I think he was kind of asking more um about I guess one one way of saying is like I, I would consider myself like I'm like a method psychedelic artist. Like I like being high and making art while I'm high. Well there's a lot of visionary artists that have an ayahuasca experience or a DMT and they have, you know, they, they, they touch the unknown or the ineffable and then they want to come back and bring that and recreate that. I don't, I don't do that because, I mean, the, the DMT experience that I've had have been beyond what I'm able to communicate in two or three dimensional shapes. So I just kind of leave that there. But yeah, it's more about having this substance and how it affects like my own intuition and what it brings out and like the depth of the narrative that I create through making my own meaning as it evolves and reveals itself. I'm, I'm sure you've gotten this question a lot before, but I'm curious if you can speak to um, 
the benefits and or limitations of formal education versus self-education and what your journey was like through that? Um, yeah, obviously, education has benefits, lots of benefits. I am a... I graduated with a bachelor uh, from uh, from an art school in Florida. Um, I'm not after that experience. Um, I don't really recommend art schools to people. I really recommend an academic education. Um, you can get those. There's a lot of different, like fine art, like smaller ateliers that are opening up, like in San Francisco and Los Angeles and New York. And there's still, if you want an, a good art art education, I would find some place that really just focuses on the the classic like academic and traditional skills of figure drawing and form and anatomy and color um, those are those are the, 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 the quintessential and the fundamental dynamics of building any level of trust between you and the audience that you're you're trying to send a message to um, without that kind of without a real found I see a lot of artists and I can tell instantly if someone's done their homework and has a has a background in those sort of, I mean, these are, these are, this is an, there's such an amazing wealth of knowledge that's been created and passed down for thousands of years. And the idea of not taking advantage of that seems really foolish if your aim is to become an artist and use images to communicate with people. It's just a, it's a deeper fundamental language. If I, if I look at a, a piece and I see someone's drawing a face and they don't, I can tell the anatomy and the proportions are off. I don't, trust them anymore you know it doesn't i'm not going to give it a deeper look you know like so much about art is it's it's this magic of like maintaining this like this this really really thin illusion that there's actually something there when it's just colors and shapes and i feel that the artist should really take advantage of like every advance every every opportunity and every because when someone sees your art, they're all, you know they might see it for a few seconds before scrolling to something else. Like you have a very, very small window to make an impression on people, and why would you not want to take advantage of all of this? Like the 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 decades and decades and lifetimes people have sacrificed and given to make all of this information available. And now all of this information you can, if you're disciplined enough, there's books. I've got like a reading list. There's you know everything I need to learn now through art or whether I'm doing VR or modeling or any new software. I just everything I can learn is on YouTube now. But you know, it's it's really it's it's not a question if all the information is there. The real question is, um, does as an individual artist, are you willing to you know make the sacrifice and the discipline to like commit to to learning that and is it going to be important enough for you and what you want to communicate um you know i couldn't imagine doing any of the things i do without the foundation that i had as an artist now, i don't recommend going to art schools because i think they're just kind of a form i think with the uh, the student loan programs i think it's a great way to just get into like an indentured servitude and uh there's a lot of filler and it's a lot of waste like if you're self-disciplined and you know what you want and you can open up a book and, and read it and not just look at the pictures, then I wouldn't see a lot of reason for, you know, that maybe there's some networking that goes on, but I think those are just all sort of catchphrases that people use as a form of scarcity to get them into art schools. And then these kids go out on the market and they want to be free and they've got $100,000 of a nefarious student loan debt that like never goes away. 
you know, I don't think the trade-off is proportionate to the advantage you get from it. But, um, you know, like if, you know, if you're, I guess it would, uh, that analogy wouldn't be appropriate. But because I think because the information is available, there's almost like an obligation or a responsibility to take advantage of it, to choose like, you know, there's, it's like if you want to be a mechanic, would you just like show up at a mechanics with like a wrench and just like freestyle it? Like you've got to learn how a car works, like the, the fundamental aspects of how like light is a predictable force, like it works in predictable ways. Once you understand the dynamics of like how light bounces, how color operates, like what the shadows, there's, there's all these formulas that you can apply. And I think that's one exciting thing about being an artist is it's given me a whole new way. When I look at the world, it's not just about what you create. It's about what you see and how you see things. Um, you know, when I, the, the books that I've read from other artists, you know, being able to have these glimpses into their lives and the insights that they've had, it's just really amazing. Like it's helped me. I look, I, as an artist, I think I look at the world completely differently just based off the words of other artists that have already died that I've read and understood like the way that they look, you know, the way someone likes the classic, like American landscape painters, like looked at a tree, like understanding like the, the fundamental respect you have, understanding the different proportions. Like it's just such a, it's a great skill that you can apply in so many different ways that, yeah, it's important. I recommend it for sure. I really appreciated the way you talked about how you kind of find um, harmony in things in chaos and that process from an artistic way of tying things together. Are you doing the same type of thing with the ideas behind your work um, as you explore them? And, and what is that process like? Do you have some type of thing you want to bring out or, or do you find resolution and explore as you go along? Yeah. It's a good question. Um, for me, they really work hand in hand. Um, if I can afford the like the luxury of it, I really like to just start with a piece without a lot of ideas or intentions. You know, I don't want to. I don't want to come to the canvas with like a screenplay of where it's going to roll out. Because um, what I find is, as I start, um, whatever you know, the the canvas becomes kind of a mirror for myself, and as I I, I have this intuitive feeling where I can, if I lay down like a shape or a color or a different stroke, there's like an intuitive like kind of inner compass of like a yes or a no or like a fuck yes or like a cringe. And I ride that for a while and I just try to keep in that sort of like positive spectrum and that sort of frequency and get into a rhythm of like, okay, this field, this is new. Like I've never seen this shape and this color in this way ever before and then after I lay down enough of that inevitably a narrative will start to like reveal itself but it reveals itself in little pieces you know it starts really small like it might be an animal or a face or an eye or you know a mountain range and then I'll kind of follow that down and I follow that more and then something else starts to come out and so instead of like a, a I'm at point A of nothing and point B is this image in my head of where I want to go this I guess kind of think of it I started I started think it's already become helpful to kind of imagine the creative process is that you know where you have this canvas and at the very onset if you kind of imagine um, all of the you have you have 
theoretically infinite possibilities of where you can go, where you start, like what brush. And if you kind of imagine this, like I kind of see it as this like frat, like this light fractal tree kind of explosion from one root. And you've got all these possibilities. And every time you make a decision, the infinite possibilities are collapsing by making a piece of art. We're actually collapsing infinity with every every yes is a no to every other thing that you do and so with this sort of like fractal route say if there's every fractable every quantum fractal possibility is laid out before i'll whatever you decide has a 100 percent probability of being that or not and so every decision you're carving your little 100 percent probability path through the fractal infinite and i find that by not knowing where I'm going to end up at the end of that fractal tree, there's different points where I can, a whole new non sequitur can come in and I can then verge this way. And then another part of the story starts to develop itself. So the narratives, um, they, they evolve together. They kind of build, they iteratively build on top of each other to, towards the end by the, wherever I am when I finish which usually means not, not, I never like, like, I can't even do the sound effect. It's not like this, like finished. It's just like abandoned, you know, I either give up or like stop fighting, but whatever that point is, it's never a point that I thought I was going to get to when I started. And for me, it's actually, the process is just more entertaining because, because I'm not imagining this in my mind. I'm seeing it as I'm creating it in real time and like the thrill of that. And that's when sometimes with the entheogens after maybe four or five hours into that process, sometimes there's a point where you kind of let go and you're just there and you're just working. You're kind of in this flow state. I don't, I'm starting to really cringe at the word flow state in general. It's just kind of just become this sort of catchphrase that people use, but whatever that deep meditation is, that there are all these different pieces that I were I created in the canvas, and then there's kind of a moment where I might not know they might have they might not have had any relationship to each other, but it's like I I make another move or I zoom out and I kind of sit with it, and then something clicks into place, and like all these disparate aspects that were totally unrelated to my process, now they all start having a deeper narrative together. And when that happens, it's that's a point where I feel that I've gone beyond working like with my own ego or my subconscious, and I feel like I'm connecting with something else that's like outside of myself, you know. And that's I think that's when art becomes something that's that's why art, you know, through art and through the creative process, it's given me access to, um, you know, the most probably mysterious and mystical experiences that I've had because I don't have any I don't have a theory I don't have an explanation on why that happens or what it is and I don't really care why it happens I know it happens I know it's really real for me and that's enough for me to be able to work with that and being lucky enough to be able to create something that other people can find meaning and benefit from one more question um you mentioned that you don't have um psychedelic experiences that you later on try to kind of capture and turn into something 
have you found that those psychedelic experiences in isolation have affected your kind of aesthetic and the way that you do then create or you know what does make its way if anything there's different ways there's definitely like i feel like under the influence of psychedelics like i've i've like 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 totally new like techniques have emerged of like how I use tools together that I never would have probably discovered sober. So there's a lot of things that happen that kind of upgrade my non-psychedelic status. And I, you know, also just the kind of, everybody has like their own thing. There were, there were a few years probably between 2005 and 2012 where I definitely had the psychedelic like pedal to the metal. Um, but there was a point where I also realized it was pretty unsustainable to operate at that. And it's really more about developing a practice where I can almost enter into that state without the psychedelics. Like now it's probably like I'll, I do, I try to do like a monthly, at least like a monthly check-in just to like recalibrate myself and kind of like, you know, try to find any of like the bullshit or any ways that I'm like fooling myself. You know, it's a good sort of like check for that. But Along the sort of sort of lines of, uh, you know, seeing, you know, taking psychedelics to like see visions. Like, there's a lot of art that I see from other visionary artists, and I, unfortunately, I can't look into anyone else's imagination or their trips. So I don't know what they're seeing, but from what I hear, there's a lot of people that take these take these kind of substances to have some really beautiful divine vision of something like interdimensional or extraterrestrial, and that's that's awesome that's cool for them like i don't do that like i um when i take psychedelics and i'm not making art it's usually because i'm out like i i don't take psychedelics to try to understand some sort of like fourth dimensional entities like agenda on the earth like i take psychedelics so i can just pray to like understand like the majesty of nature i take psychedelics and i study like the way that the trees grow I take psychedelics and I study the way that the, I'll, I'll look at the way that like the bees will start moving around the hives and the shapes they make because I find that nature is the, you know, psychedelics really, they're not inspiring, but they help me gain a whole new level of insight into what is the most inspiring thing, which is just raw, beautiful nature that's around us all the time. Andrew, I was just wondering, um, like, what would you identify as your primary motivation to make art nowadays? Because to me, it seems like you're at a point where you could probably not make art and just kind of like sail off of the stuff that you've already done. And like, you could almost go the Maynard James Keenan route of like, all right, I'm just going to start like a vineyard now or, or something like that. But like, what what keeps you inspired and like, why do you still keep creating visual art that's a that's a great and flattering question um a lot of different ways i've def- i thought about that sometimes um i know i got really into evolutionary psychology and biology a couple years ago and realized that most of what i thought i was doing through all these like really kind of like naive and i just idealistic ideas of like why i was an artist and why i made art i realized it was just like a subconscious way of like peacocking and signaling so I could find like the most ideal mate to breed with, you know? And I found an ideal mate and we've bred once and it's pretty awesome. So like I don't need to meet I don't need to make art 
to like to signal to the community to find a better mating partner because I've got that. So that's done. So I can take that motivation away. So it's like without that motivation, why am I making it? There is the financial aspect, and I I could I have enough of a library of work. I could probably just hustle that for a while. That's another that could be a strategy for sure. Um, but I think like deep down, you know, Jake that that being in that that in when you're really in the throes of a creative experience like it is it's fundamentally the most uh the most valuable thing that i think i could ever be doing with my time you know it's better than like i'm not really into like i'm not a foodie i'm not i like sex but like i like being i like making art more than sex i like it more than any other thing that there is i can't imagine that there's when you're high and you're making a piece of art. Like there's times where I'm like, I don't think there's anything else in the entire planet that I could be doing that's more amazing than this is right now to like be like wielding the full power of like the most advanced art making technology, like on the planet, listening to tipper, you know, on really clean LSD, like on my farm. It's like, I'm sorry if you've got like, if you have something that's more fun than that, like I'll try that too. But this is the best thing that I've found that I can do with my time. And ultimately, whatever, you know, regardless of what chemicals got me into that state of mind, and it happens often without chemicals, I know that there's my, you know, ultimately, I think our minds are the greatest pharmacies that are around. Like the kind of chemicals that we can create, like adrenaline and serotonin, like these things are unbelievable. Whatever, whatever chemical is secreted in my mind during a moment of like complete like flow creative like abandon in that moment like i'm hopelessly addicted to that you know i'm a junkie for that deep creative flow space and you know regardless i don't think that i would ever i don't see myself ever recovering from that particular addiction you know, and to, I can't, I mean, maybe I'll find scuba diving or something, you know, but like, I don't know, scuba diving is fun too, but until I find a better way of getting that fix, I think I'm pretty locked in to this art thing for the foreseeable future. Just if, if you don't mind sharing, you don't have to. Um, I mean, people equate and see the relationship between, um, you know, creativity and madness, mental illness or instability or even just um, chaos. What, how would you describe the rest of your life and how does it interplay with what you're creating? That's, yeah, that's good. There are, uh, it's not all, you know, sunshine and unicorns and rainbows for sure. Um, there is, I think that if I were to like go back and dissect um, the different, like the events in my life and the, the moments that created the kind of causality that got me on this path and if I were to cross-correlate that with a lot of the different like artist biographies and autobiographies and memoirs of artists that I really appreciate, the one one common denominator that I found that's uh, that's uh, it's kind of startling and uh, a, uh, a little unnerving is uh, is is the is the parallel between trauma and art. You know, I know very few artists or pieces of art that I don't like revere and admire and, uh, and have in my house 
that I cannot find that that artist wasn't souped. Something really fucked up happened to them. You know, like I had a, f- a friend, an artist, Coleman, that kind of talked about that. Like great artists, like when you're seeing their art, you're really just watching them bleed onto the canvas, you know? And in a lot of ways it is that some pieces, you know, some pieces I do do in this moment of joy and celebration and exuberance. And a lot of them like are, they're, like, they're battles, you know, I feel there's pieces that I've done at the end. I feel like there's like, I somehow infused part of my life force that I'll never get back, you know? And I put into that, you know, I think that a lot of artists, like we do suffer for what we do, but a lot of that, I mean, one of the reasons I probably became an artist is because I had like my traumas. I had a near-death experience when I was young. I had brain surgery and I lost all faith and trust in the world and people. And the only thing that I wanted to do was be alone and be by myself. Like if I wasn't so fucked up when I was 11 and chose to not trust anybody and not want friends and not want to go to school and that playing Super Metroid and drawing monsters and spaceships was the only thing that kept me sane you know i wouldn't have the skills that i do and i take advantage of now you know so i think a lot of artists it's like it's a way of processing trauma but the trauma can also be like a really fundamental and deeply embedded aspect of like what got them to the point because being an artist and making an artist is a pretty unreasonable thing to do and uh you know, I think that sometimes it takes some pretty unexpected and unreasonable things to happen in someone's path to set them in this sort of trajectory and be able to kind of like commit to it and make that sort of thing. So, wow. Do you have thoughts on um, from kind of an evolutionary psychology type of background as to how and why that common denominator emerges for people? Um, I think it's different things. I think that. Um, you know, I think that one thing for me, if I can just, I can only speak for myself, I can't speak for other people's trauma, like almost dying at 11 made me realize that like being stripped of this illusion of immortality at a young age and coming so close to death made me, it gave me a new perspective on time and that I didn't have enough time to fuck around and that death could come any day and take me at any moment and for some reason I made up a narrative that I didn't for some like miraculous reason I didn't die like odds were definitely in favor of me dying like without cat scans and technology and really fast ambulances like I wouldn't have made it so I kind of just slipped under the radar under like deaths like Sith and uh, you know I could have I guess I could have I could have had a nihilistic approach but I kind of thought like well maybe I'm here for something and I don't have a whole lot of time for that something, so I better get to it and not waste my time. And, you know, I was a pretty serious little kid after that. You know, I wasn't, I didn't really fit in anymore. And that, that was enough of just like an altering of the fractal infinite possibility tree to put me in a place that gave me like lots of reasons to be alone and lots of isolation and the sketchbook, like the world of my imagination and the drawing like I realized I was not in control of anything else. I wasn't in control of like my health or my life or whatever, but I could control this pencil on this piece of paper in this little book that I can put right here on a table. And that was enough, you know? And it was just the fear, the intense fear of everything else that made drawing 
a refuge that had some semblance of safety to it. And, uh, yeah, I think after enough of it, I realized that, you know, there was nothing else I wanted to do, and I didn't dedicate any time to develop any other skills, so I was just kind of stuck with it from there on. Uh, just, I have two questions. One is a quick one, which is, what do you have here at Burning Man that we should be seeing? I, I just haven't figured that out yet and want to make sure I, I see it. And then two, I was wondering if you also have a, a distinct or a disciplined uh, spiritual practice that uh, informs your your life or your discipline or your art as well. Yeah, um, we're out here. We're out at uh, 2 o'clock in G outside Camp Mystic. Um, we've brought, I think for the third year, we've got our a, a 40-foot dome with uh, the Samskara experience that we're going to start on Wednesday. Uh, start showing that Wednesday from dusk till dawn, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and I think at least Saturday night we're going to have that. And then we have another dome where for the last year, year and a half, I've kind of focused a lot of my lasers on uh, kind of exploring um, virtual reality and um, our ability to be creative and create inside of that. And so I have a, a, I've been working on a project called Microdose VR and we have a, another dome out there with like four or five, we call they call them pods, but they're like VR units that people can go in and kind of experience like a three to five minute virtual reality kind of creative experience. So we're out there in that, in that, in the two o'clock in G. So just kind of follow two o'clock out. We're there and uh spiritual practice. Um, you know, I've, I've, I've studied a lot of religions. I was born, I was born into a Catholic family. I went to Catholic school. Um, I was, I was really looking into like the Baha'i religion for a while. I've studied a lot of, uh, Buddhism and meditation. Um, I spent a lot of time in India. I think out of, out of all of them so far, like I'm, I find the, I, I find the, I guess the least amount of bullshit and the most amount of sort of resonance with, um, with some of the practices and just the things I've learned while I've been in India and Hinduism, uh, something specifically about like Shiva. Like I, if I had to, if I had to like commit to like a team or like buy a spiritual Jersey, like, I guess I would be like a Shivite if I had to. Um, but, um, I find that, you know, my, I think my, like I have an altar at the house and, um, sometimes before I go into like a journey or a deeper experience, like I'll sit and I'll meditate. Um, I, I have a couple chants that I do. I find a lot of help through some of these chanting, like the words of the, the yoga sutras and the Vedas have given me a lot of like this. There's some pretty like amazing, objectively awesome life advice things that they've figured out that are great. Um, but I think a lot of like my personal spiritual practice is my, as I, I kind of mentioned a bit earlier, but the access point that I have to the most transcendental supernatural, supernatural, mysterious thing that I don't have an explanation for is the type of creative, you know, intelligence that's separate than me that I encounter during a really deep creative session. Like that's where it opens up to me. And, um, I think that's, I think any type of spirituality require, usually they require like a bit of like some type of a discipline and sometimes of like repetitive practice to get there. So, I think that through like just like the drawing and art creation, that's been the path that I've just carved out enough that it's given me, you know, it, 
a, a semi-predictable a route to kind of be there. And every time, the, you know, the mystery is as mysterious as it was the first time that it happens. And like I said, it's not about, I'm not really into, I don't, I don't, I don't have any kind of vain need to like know why or what it's happened. As long as what I'm, whatever I'm connecting outside of myself, as long as I have a feeling that it's, it's for it's it's a positive entity for the betterment of humanity and has my better instruments in line. I'm gotten pretty good at being able to detect the, the the malevolent forces as much as I can, and you know I think that I've built up my radar hopefully enough. But they're pretty tricky too. They're really really tricky. You know, and they're they're quicker, they're easier to access too. You know, the darker forces that can help you out, like they are, like the good ones. I feel you've got to work up to them, like the really powerful, like angelic, like amazing, like those forces. Like they 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 require a bit more of like exercise and discipline to like get to and be worthy. I feel you have to be like worthy of to receive like the kind of the the divine or inspiration from those. Um, but man, the fucking demons, man, they're just, they're ready. They're like right behind your back. Like as soon as you want to call on them, they're like fucking lickety split. They've got you. So you got to be careful about that. You know, you just got to know who you're working for and who you're working with. Cause I think good and evil are totally real things. Objectively real. No bullshit. There's good. There's fucking evil. There's evil forces. There's good forces. And I think each one of our lives are a battle between our own individual soul and the forces of good and evil. You know, that's a, I realize it's a little simplistic and we don't have a whole lot of time to get into the nuances of it. But I do, as far as a spiritual practice, I believe in right and wrong, good and bad, truth and fiction. And I want to align at least 51% of my life on the good side, for sure. Oh, hi, thanks for sharing so much of your experience with us. Um, I wonder, wondered if you could talk a little bit about your evolving sense of um, the community that you're reaching and how you interact with your audience and how that, that sense of that has changed as you've developed as an artist over time. Yeah, you know, it's, um, as an artist, none of us exist in a vacuum. And I think we all are kind of uh, artists. We're constantly, you know, either... Either we're aware or are unconsciously incorporating our environment, like into our work. Um, this is my this is my fifteenth burn in a row, and um, one of the reasons that I kind of get a whole team together and bring out all my most like precious like art and equipment and things is because I know I think after like the first five or six years, you know, Burning Man has been a really deep. Uh, an important aspect of like the genesis of like my own like unfolding identity over the past like decade and a half like um, and so I feel a like an um, amazing opportunity and kind of an obligation to try to give back as much as it's given me and you know over the years the I think that the work that I've created it's been it's been very much like in response to the reflection of the community that I've been part of. You know, it's been very kind of co-created. Like I come out showing art at Burning Man gives me this amazing opportunity to display the work that I've created for the past year in front of probably the most like open and vulnerable and receptive audiences I could ever find on the planet and observing that interaction and what people are responding to and what they're not as definitely... Um, you know, like I'm, 
I consider myself like I'm a, I'm a bit of a, ple- a, a pleaser, you know, like I'm, I don't really subscribe to the whole like our true artist like only makes art for themselves and anything else is kind of selling out, you know. There's, all, there's obviously like a bit of truth to that, but you can take it too far. But I think if any art, if any artist wants to be making art sustainably and they want to be able to kind of carve out some type of pattern that they are, all they need, all they have to do is make art to survive. You're going to have to at some point come to some type of reckoning of what, at least like what kind of, what kind of positive or what kind of experience your art is giving people and the and if that experience is valuable or not. Um, I definitely want to make sure that I'm creating art that has some type of a value of an experience to people. And I think coming out to these events and festivals, it's definitely gotten me, um, you know, I'd never be able to get this sort of one-on-one data mining when I'm like on the farm by myself. And uh, so the amount of things that I learn and the, uh, you know, I think it takes, you know, a lot of the art and the, on the subjects, subject matters that I kind of go into, like it's not for everybody either. And uh, it takes, you know, it takes a certain level of, of when someone like really connects with a piece, um, you know, I try to acknowledge them for being in whatever place that they can really receive what I'm trying to give because it's a two-way you know the relationship between the artist and the audience like it needs to be you know it doesn't need to be but i find it's better when it's something that's symbiotic and that there's a kind of a connection there you know because it's all you know it's you know it's also an indication like i want to try to when i make a piece of art you know i want to try to go to like the deeper aspects i want to make something that has like an element of like truth and is honesty to it and i find that the deeper I can go into an individual truth. Actually, the more I find that other people can identify and resonate with that. And so based off seeing people's reactions to it, it gives me like another level of indication whether I was kind of on the right path or, you know, how honest I was being with myself and if that can connect with people. So I would say like, yeah, the relationship is is important and, and it's inseparable for sure. And I give a lot of gratitude to my community and my friends and the people that have helped me, you know, I, I'm, I'm not able to do this on my own either. You know, the team that I have and my partner, Martha and all my droids like there, you know, I'd never be able to bring and share the things that I do without my awesome support team back home. It's the part where we dance. All right. We got about, five minutes left so once this awesome art car makes it down the block kind of think about if anybody has any like deep burning questions comments concerns uh this is the time with your work with vr and interest in biology do you have any with your interest in vr and interest in like evolution and biology do you have any thoughts as to how things like augmented reality might be changing us as a species over the long run it's a great question yeah, I think the things. I think the VR and the AR. It's just right. It's kind of infancy right now, but I think the opportunities that it has the potential um, to uh, to kind of unlock for us are like. I'm very optimistic and excited about what what can come about. I mean, 
on kind of a fundamental element, like with the world of, you know, at least kind of talking about the AR space. And AR would be kind of, I think some people call it AR or MR, like augmented reality or mixed reality, but that's just like being able to wear a pair of glasses and having, you can look at the world, but it gives an artist or a creative or like an engineer the ability to overlay in real time, like whatever theoretically kind of like world or things that you want to see. So from, and that, you know, there's great implications for like information and maps and it's kind of gives, it's almost like giving like a superpower. But I think as an artist, as a two dimensional artist, um, you know, for most of my career, the, the, the opportunity, the boundaries of the opportunities I had to be creative were either some type of like a rectangle or a screen or like a projector, you know, like we like to think that art is this, you know, we have, we're, we have no limits as artists, but there's a lot of limits um, with the areas of like augmented reality as an artist. I mean, every empty molecule of space then becomes a potential canvas to have like walk around and have like three dimensional holographic sculptures or paintings or interactive little it it definitely it really it's really going to like widen the aperture of like what is possible um um which is great and there's of course like a dark side that that same empty real estate is going to be taken up by advertisements and other things too so it's not you know it's not utopia um but i think you know i i can say like for myself as an, as far as like art and technology that the tools that I've used have definitely um, the the relationship that I've had is there. They're a fundamental aspect of like how I create and I imagine. Like I dream in VR now, or like I'll dream in the different software packages that I use. Like it's it's become like it's a, it's a deeply embedded aspect of how my creative mind works and like solves different problems. And just from working in VR, like for the last like year and a half, like I can, you know, the first time I, I, I put VR on and I was kind of drawing in this like three dimensional space, like I could, I felt like I could feel like these like, these like neur, neur, neuron like huskies, like these new neural pathways just started like burning like through my brain. Like I could feel these new possibilities open up that were that were just dormant or not accessible before. And that's my hope through VR that it is actually going to be able there, there, there'll be experiences that can like provide us like measurable results of, you know, really expanding consciousness on a scientific level, not just like a woo woo. I trip, I trip shrooms and now I'm like a higher dimensional being, you know, but like really like, you know, working with, I think with, with VR, we also like, we work with the guys that work at like, Stanford where you're we're doing VR and like EEG like we're actually you know I'm able to be in VR and directly interact with my own brain waves and like that's just like cool stuff that's never happened before you know and so me and my team are just really passionate about that and and open to kind of exploring that in whatever way creates a beneficial and valuable and meaningful experience for people so that's it cool all right, guys. Yeah, thank you very much. Unfortunately, I've got to get back to building a hologram, but um, that's been a pleasure. Hope you guys all have an unbelievable burn and come check us out Wednesday night. Um, we'll be out there at 2 o'clock in G. Yeah. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time.
I was glad to hear Android mention virtual reality just now, because, as it so happens, that is very much on my mind today. In past podcasts, I may have mentioned that one of our fellow saloners, Darren Bazil, had stopped by and loaned us the use of his wonderful Vibe VR hardware that runs Tilt Brush. Needless to say, my granddaughters loved it. And later this week, Darren is stopping by once again, and he said that he'll let us borrow his VR setup for a few more days. Now, before I'd use this amazing technology myself, I was wondering about all the hype that Oculus Rift was getting. But now having experienced virtual reality firsthand, I'm here to tell you that should you ever get a chance to try this tech, you shouldn't pass it up. The other day, my youngest granddaughter, who's in fourth grade, told me that she wanted to study art so that one day she could be an art teacher in grammar school herself. For a nine-year-old, I'd say that she already has her act pretty much together. And you should see her and her older sister when they put that headset on and begin painting with light in three dimensions. Already they have taught themselves how to create 3D virtual art that, well, that us adults find not only interesting but beautiful as well. I can't even imagine what great art they'll be able to create in the years ahead. So now I'm going to turn them on to the work of Android Jones just to let them know what they can do if they really want to eventually head in that direction. But you may be surprised to learn that, for me, one of the most important things I got from listening to Android Jones with you just now was the fact that he likes to be alone, even to the point of being hermit-like at times. And the reason that resonates so deeply with me is that, well, (laughs) I feel the same way. And while that may seem kind of a non-issue with some people, I can assure you that my friends and family often find my desire to be alone, well, it makes me somewhat difficult to live with, particularly when they're in the mood for more of a social Lorenzo. I guess that what I'm saying is that after hearing that Android feels that way too, Well, in some way that makes me feel a little less strange. Not that I want to be normal, of course. And now that we've spent so much time talking about the beautiful creations of Android Jones, I'm going to sign off and go back to watching another of the fascinating videos of his work. So for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.